Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hi there, Jim Henson here again, and welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm very happy to be joined this week by Ross Ramsey, the executive editor of the Texas Tribune and a pal. So thanks for taking time to be here, Ross. Thanks for having me in. Uh, Ross is a veteran observer of Texas politics, and in a way, we'll switch roles next week. Uh, when this podcast will actually be the special edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast right. uh, about the soon-to-be-released, very soon-to-be-released UT Texas Tribune poll. So that podcast will do double duty. So so be careful how you treat me. I'm doing my best already. Uh, now, this week, I've invited Ross to talk about the, the biggest development in the last week or so, week and a half, which is Governor Abbott's announcement of a special session. As we discussed in the podcast last week, this was much anticipated and, and the governor ultimately took a somewhat inventive approach to the special session, don't you think, Ross? I, he did. You know, there was a question of uh, when he would call this um, and what would be the scope of the special session. And most people that were speculating about it thought it would be limited. And, you know, there was an issue that they have to cover, which is uh, sunset legislation to basically extend the expiration date of a handful of agencies, including the Texas Medical Board, which licenses doctors. Uh, so that one's kind of important. That became the headline in well, a lot of ways. And that was and that was the must-do bill that the legislature didn't do. And then there were other bills that were of political importance to various players, and there was a lot of speculation about which of those the governor would and wouldn't throw into the stack. And he just threw all the spaghetti at the wall. He threw up, you know, he said if you pass, if once the Senate, where the must-do legislation failed. Once the Senate passes the sunset legislation, I'm going to add 19 measures to the call. Yeah, I call it kind of the kitchen sink poll, or yeah. the kitchen sink uh, uh, special session. Knock yourself out. So you have 30 days to handle 20 issues that you could not handle in 140 days. Go. Right. And and, and if we look a little more closely at that, at, at that list, it was an interesting combination of things that had come up in the regular session, but also things that had had kind of low to zero profile. Um, you know, things like a, a teacher pay raise. Um, you know, some of the measures aimed at, at schools, a school giving school finance administrators more flexibility in teacher hiring. That stuff was out there, but it wasn't very big. On the other hand, he put school finance reform on there, which had been big in the house. Yeah. He put uh, well, he kind else? of he kind of put it on. He said we yeah. should do a study. He kind of took the Senate's approach to the House's school finance plan. right, but gets to say he did something that he's right. doing he gets something to check a box right right, and, and then a whole host of other things. What really stuck out for you about the list and what was on there? Well, you know, a couple themes. Um, you know, the the one that was odd was the teacher pay raise. It's a thousand dollar per teacher pay raise. There are roughly three hundred and forty thousand teachers, uh, public school teachers in Texas. So the quick back of the envelope on this is that's six hundred to seven hundred million dollars over the course of a two-year budget. They don't have six hundred to seven hundred million dollars. So the governor said, when he laid this out, it was, we should do this. It's not apparent the state has the money. 
it's uh, if you ask local school districts if they have the money, they'll say, "Heck, no, we don't have the money." So that one's that one's kind of odd. Well, the governor did say, I mean, in a way, he did, and he did this in a, he did this in a few places here. I think he took a kind of conservative approach to a liberal item, right? Because he also did say, "Well, and what we should do is we're not going to." come up with extra money in the budget, right. they should just cut waste and administrative costs in the schools. And that's a classic conservative approach to, to, to public education, it's, right? It's a bit of Harry Potter. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you want to wave a wand and, you know, have six or seven hundred million dollars appear. And then, you know, if you raise teacher pay one one time, you raise it the next time and the next time and the next time. That's an ongoing thing. Okay, so the second thing I might point out is the, and you mentioned it, is the local control issue. You know, Greg Abbott has been talking for a long time about centering government around the states. You know, the federal government has too much power. He's talked about a convention of states where the states would take on some of the things that the federal government does that he believes are properly in the hands of the states, that it's um, too Washington-directed, ought to be more of a federation. And his second piece of that, which he's, you know, is becoming clearer and clearer now, you know, since he got elected um, in 2014, is that the cities and the counties and special districts in the state derive their powers from the state and that some of that power needs to be reinvested in Austin and taken back from cities and counties that have, you know, in various points of view, run amok. Reinvested in state government in, in Austin. state government, right, right. So, you know, so state government would take up some of the powers that it has doled out to cities and counties and would draw down some of the powers that it has, um, that the federal government has unfairly taken from the states. So the big scheme would make the Austins and the Sacramentos and the Albanies more powerful. And, it, and it's an interesting, I mean, I, I think a lot of opponents of the move to sort of act against state and local autonomy have cried hypocrisy about this because they see it as, well, you don't like a, an overweening federal government, but you're fine with a state government that can preempt localities. But there is something of a basis for this approach in the Texas Constitution. Well, there is a basis for the approach. There's also, you know, this is also recent history. You know, five minutes ago, you heard Ann Richards say in the in the intro, this was a two-party state and they were all Democrats. And when the Republicans, who are now the two parties in Texas, um, were taking that back, they started at the local level and they were arguing as they were trying to take county commissioner seats and city council seats, mayor's jobs, that, you know, that the important part of government was local. And that's where they started this line. And now that they're in state government, now that they've worked their way up and they're in control of the government and have been for a couple of decades, they still have vestiges of this anti-government, uh, the government closest to the people. All of that rhetoric is still in there, but now they've got an overarching view of how things ought to work now that they're in control. Not necessarily the same thing you say when you're trying to grab control. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most interesting things going on right now, I think, in state politics from a kind of structural perspective right. of the, the big arc of things. Because, right. you know, as you say, there was, a, there was a political logic and rationale to these arguments about local autonomy and local control that also resonated with the state's history. I mean, you know, we think about Texas as a frontier state. You know, small government, you know, the the Republican Party didn't invent the small government impulse in Texas. It's pretty deeply rooted right. in the culture, nor did they invent the idea that, you know, people should, that are close, you say, that are close to their government should have a lot of, you know, they should have a lot, that should be a means of control over their lives. Right. Um, but now there is a different competing logic, you know, if you will, on the ground, given that, 
you know, the big urban centers, the big entities in local government that have the most impact on the most people are the municipal and county governments in the major urban centers. And that's where the vast majority of people live, but it's also where the vast majority of Democrats have the most political power. Right. Those are the blue spots. And, you know, the blue spots, you know, the the phrase you hear over and over rhetorically is we don't need a patchwork of laws across the state as you cross invisible city lines. And this one allows, you know, texting while driving, and this one doesn't, or this one does in that circumstance, but that one doesn't. Ride sharing and Uber. Ride sharing and Uber and on and on. Yeah. And they've gone to the extent, interestingly, of um, overruling voters in a couple of cases. Ride-sharing is an example of this in Austin. The um, fracking ordinance in Denton that passed a couple of years ago was overruled by the legislature after voters approved it. So they're not afraid to get, you know, right up in voters' grills about this stuff. Then the third thing that I would say is sort of a theme in the governor's list here is a set of big... um, conservative or movement conservative items that have been on the list for a long time. Bathrooms, school vouchers, um, property taxes, although property taxes crosses over and is more of, you know, it's just as much a business Republican issue as it is a social conservative issue. But those are some of the big things that we, when we were speculating about what might be on the agenda, those items are all here. So the legislature is going to come in. They have to do the must-do item first before the governor will add anything else. And then the day the Senate does the must-do item, the governor comes in and says, here's the 19 things on your wish list. And, and that kind of brings us to the question of the politics of this situation in, term, in, in the sense that at a very basic level, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a very kind gesture by the governor towards the legislature as a body to say, here, you need to come back in the middle of the summer and here's 20 things to do. I mean, it's it's hard not to interpret that as as somewhat hostile towards the legislature as a body, and as a sign that you know you've got the executive branch and the legislative branch at some you know high level right. colliding here, right? Well, and you know to enforce that idea. I mean, he was on the radio uh, the other day doing an interview about this and said, you know, the reason we're coming back. Is to do some of the work that the lazy legislature didn't take care of. And he used the word lazy. The legislature loves being called lazy. This is, you know, somebody needs to send him a copy of um, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Because nobody likes being called lazy. Nobody likes being called lazy. So, I mean, the interesting thing here is going to be how the legislature takes this long list of items and does, as legislators do, manipulates it and and starts to the senate wants to go fast on this the house wants to go fast on that neither of them really wants to do this the governor's pushing for this but doesn't really have any stroke over there during a special session other than his ability to list the items they should consider and his potential to use a threat that says if you don't finish item 18 you're coming back for another 30 days it's going to be a really interesting um sort of psychological war yeah it really it really underlines how the governor can choose a spot, right. right, to really exercise their powers, you know, to the most effective means. And this is one of those spots where the governor is really in the driver's seat in terms of issuing threats and being able to affect other actors in the system. As you say, the you know, the ability to just stand there and go, yeah, I, I think you guys haven't really done a very good job. I'm just going to have you come back again for another 30 days. When Bill Clements was governor, the one of the big issues was workers' compensation insurance. It was a, a real sleeper. People were out there talking. It was a big thing to business. And um, 
the at that time two powerful factions were you know sort of the business lobby on one side and trial lawyers on the other side and that was kind of the basis for a lot of big fights in texas politics at the time and it locked this issue up they couldn't get it out of a regular session and bill clements basically came out a republican governor first republican governor since um, reconstruction and said i'm going to keep calling the legislature back until you people either pass this bill or go broke in your personal businesses just we're going to play sweat they had six special sessions um, and they passed a workers' comp bill. And, and this is where that, that notion of the citizens' legislature, quote-unquote, right, really does come into play. I mean, the governor can say, look, I know you people have lives, presumably, that aren't all locked up in this. And right. so it really does give the governor some leverage. So there's that level of politics that's kind of the executive versus the legislature. Another interesting thing about this kitchen sink approach to the agenda and the list of items that, that the governor has set up is that it also just reactivates, and you kind of hinted at this a minute ago, it reactivates the conflict between the House and the Senate and between the leadership in both of those chambers, right? Right. So school finance is a, is a good, weird example. The school finance system is messed up. The Texas Supreme Court said about a year ago that the basically the ruling from Don Willett on the Supreme Court said this is as messed up as a school finance system can get without being unconstitutional. And when the legislature heard the words not unconstitutional, they said, okay, we don't have to do anything. A, a lot of them just moved, it. Not, to be fair, not all of them, but right. many of them just kind of went, okay, don't have to do that. In modern history, they've never um, done anything significant with school finance except under orders from courts. So they didn't have an order, so they didn't do it. So the House came in and they said, let's put $1.5 or $1.8 billion of new state money into school finance that lowers pressure on local school districts that, in turn, lowers pressure on local property tax rates. A bunch of things happens down line. If only we can find this 1.5 or 1.8 million. And they did some accounting tricks and some things to find that. The Senate wasn't having it and basically said, you know, let's do a smaller version of that that doesn't do as much about property taxes. And they threw in a school voucher program that basically used public money for private education of special needs kids. And... The House voted twice during the regular session in various forms against any kind of subsidies of private education, um, which is a pretty good indication where the House proper is. It's right. not so, just so, a leadership thing. So it's fair to say that the Senate should have had some expectations that that was not likely to be successful. They had asked and been answered <laughs> twice, and, and they're asking again. So now the governor comes back in a kind of a provocative move and puts vouchers for special needs kids back on the call. So... Apparently, um, the House's two votes during the session didn't get through to either the center office in the Capitol or to the office on the on the east end of the Capitol. So let's unpack the politics a little bit of that for people that aren't as, aren't as inside. I mean, the idea here is that, you know, throughout the session, we saw a lot of conflict between both the House and the Senate, the Senate being more dominated by you know, what you call more movement conservatives, more ideological conservatives. Much stronger voice over there. And the leader are, is Dan Patrick, who's who's like the leading voice of that faction of the party right, right now. Right, yeah, which is in part a reflection of the fact that Dan Patrick is, in fact, of that movement as well. And it illustrates how the lieutenant governor has a lot of influence in the Senate. The House, a much more mixed bag, still dominated by Republicans, Speaker. The House is still a Republican, but as Governor Abbott has pointed out, with a much different agenda, uh, a much more to some degree, traditional, business-dominated, more uh, compromise-oriented Republican agenda in the House. And I guess my point would be, the governor, this is not news to the governor. 
The governor knows this is going on, and he basically takes, you know, I, I keep thinking about it, it's, it's, it's a version of Jaws where they're chunking all the fish meat into the water and just waiting for things to happen. Uh, you know, when, you, when you chum the water, you're trying to attract the sharks, and sometimes they fight with each other. And it's hard not to see this as a purpose of move by the governor, right? I mean, a part of his political strategy. Uh, yeah, I think he's smart enough that this, you'd have to call this purposeful. I, you know, <laughs> the only other thing you could call it is he doesn't know what he's doing, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to that. Um, there, it's got a couple of things to it. it you know, these are issues in some large measure that appeal to the conservative primary voters that both Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick will be in front of on a statewide basis on March 6th of next year. And, you know, in the House, uh, as you said, it's a different mechanism. Joe Strauss is the most powerful non-statewide official in Texas. He's elected uh, in one of 150 House districts. He's from San Antonio. And then the members in turn elect their speaker. So he's more reflective as a representative, as a speaker representative, more reflective of the representatives of, in of the, the House. Of the body, right. yes, as they say. Than of, yeah. than of, you know, a particular group of voters. This list of issues that Abbott put out are, is pretty satisfying to those Republican primary voters who are so important in statewide elections in March. And a lot of his rhetoric right now appears to be geared toward that. Um you know, there's been an ongoing question about Greg Abbott since he was elected, um, since he didn't really have a primary when he ran for governor. Which kind of Republican is he? Is he one of the downtown Republicans or one of the church Republicans? You know, which which side of the field is yeah. he from? And he's, to, 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 to produce broad distinctions, right? right? Uh, to use my dad's term for him, um, <laughs> a Republican himself. Um, he's done a pretty good job of having both all kinds of Republicans think he's our governor. Right now he's playing to the most conservative, movement conservatives, who the people who dominate the primaries. So with it set up that way, you know, what's this going to look like come July 18th? Uh, you're going to pass some kind of legislation on this sunset thing. And there's a, there's a weird little intricacy there. You can either just kick these agencies down the road and say, you know, let's reconsider them when the legislature comes back in 2019. Or you can open the whole box and do a whole sunset review of the Texas Medical Board and do a whole sunset review of each of these agencies, which takes a lot of time, which eats up the clock, which lessens the amount of time you're going to spend on bathrooms and union dues and municipal annexation reform and all the rest. So we could see a disagreement from day one, from day one. basically. The Senate could go in and start thinking they just want to pass... The kick, it down, the, the, the kick it down the road bill and the how, I mean, this would be the way the political logic would work out as I read. The House could say, you know, as long as we've got some extra time, let's just do this right. Right. Let's just roll up our sleeves and get to work on this. You know, we don't want like anybody to think said. we're lazy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, you know, the, the, the thing that's interesting here is the mood of the legislature hasn't changed. You know, you can argue, I would argue that the, the, that the mood of this legislature was really set and broken in some ways when the House considered the Sanctuary Cities legislation. I think that was April. It might have been yeah, early May. Have, yeah, probably um, April, yeah. But they're in the last six weeks or so. And it was one of those issues where, you know, there are divisive issues that come to the floors of both chambers of the, of the legislature all through a session. That's what it is. It's a big fighting box. And everybody understands that. And you have a pitched battle over this subject or that subject. And then you go eat lunch together or something. You know, it's just like, oh, that was a tough fight. Um, put your arm around each other and go make up and come back the next day. Sanctuary Cities was different. It was personal. And members took it personally. And particular uh, Hispanic members took it very personally because you were talking about 
their families in large measure. And you were talking about, you know, whether police in cities in Texas are going to be pulling over every time they pull over a Latino saying, can I see your papers? Right, because the Sanctuary Cities Bill, you know, basically provided for police to you know, not be prohibited from stopping people to check their immigration status. It prevents cities and counties and police chiefs and sheriffs from telling their officers you cannot check. Right. Right. So it leaves to the officers whether you check. A um, uh, great deal of discretion, really, when you come right, right down to it to the police. So which opens all kinds of issues that, you know, look like they're going to be settled in court because the lawsuits are already out there. Right. But the point I'm trying to make is that debate in the House was so pitched and so personal that feelings were so bruised afterwards that they never went out and had the beer afterwards. They never went out yeah. and had lunch afterwards. And it influenced a lot of issues as the session went on. In fact, the the same issue was the subject of a protest on the last day of the session that almost caused a, a you know, a punch out on the floor of the house. Didn't right. quite come to that, but you know, there was some pushing and shoving. <laughs> yeah. It was it was right up there. Um, the mood hasn't changed. There's been nothing to move to say, okay, Here's new information on bathrooms, and here's new information on this thing or that thing. Come, let us reason together. And so they have six weeks to come back from the end of the regular session to the beginning of the special session. And you have to ask yourself, I would ask myself, what's going to change here that we would expect a different outcome on these issues or just an extension of the fight we've already had? Yeah, I would think in some ways it's e- it's even worse because I think the the governor's comments, frankly, have layered on a whole new level of antipathy. And, right. you know, I mean, in the governor's defense or, you know, they could go back and there's been a series of shots across the bow from one branch to the other, from one chamber to the other. Part of it, you know, feels to me because a little bit of a war of all against all. There's just a, it's a conflict-laden political system right now. You know, there are serious divisions and contention among Republicans. And as you say, the, the, the issue of immigration is something that really just activates partisan lines. And so, right. you know, no matter what you do, you know, it's sort of like, okay, so who's going to be involved in a pitched fundamental fight today? And then the governor sort of threw gasoline on that in a lot of ways. Well, one of the things that happens if you throw out 20 issues instead of one is that you get cross currents. And, you know, it may be that the three major factions in the legislature, Democrats, Republican Group A and Republican Group B, right, um, align differently on each of these 20 issues. It may be that here's how they split on school finance. Here's how they split on property taxes. Here's how they split on bathrooms. And you're going to see these shifting alliances and interests. And, you know, there's going to be a fair number of legislators from each of those factions who are basically in the mode of, let's just do the medical board and get out of here. Right. And it's unclear to me whether that will actually work. I mean, they're going to want to try it, I think. But I think with that, we'll say, hey, goodbye till next week. And next week, we'll have all kinds of new stuff to talk about. And we'll follow this issue. So thanks to Ross Ramsey for being here. Thanks to all you for listening. And we'll see you next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project and the Project 2021 Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin.